We live in a culture that believes that every individual can decide for themselves what is right and what is wrong. Ethical standards are personal and relative. This relativity in ethics and spiritual values is preached as gospel in the secular universities of our land. But what if this is a lie? If you only get to live your life once, and if someone gives you the wrong information when you are young, it could be deadly before you grow old. This is Truth Encounter, a program committed to challenging you to take your own careful look at the biblical Christ. Today, our study leader, Dave Wurtson, uses the example of smoking to show how something that our culture only a few years ago said was cool has now proven to be deadly. If you have a New Testament handy, turn to Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 20, and let's take a look at a church that had Christ-like works, but satanic lusts. I find that when a whole culture thinks something's good, a whole culture thinks something is great, then it's easy for me just to go along with that. I remember as a kid, you know, growing up back in New Jersey, looking at these ads, and they were really Texas ads. They had the old Marlboro Man. Anybody old enough to remember those old Marlboro advertisements? And they'd have this incredible hulk of a cowboy. And here was the epitome of this cowboy that would have that riding on a really sharp uh, stallion. And he'd have a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. And that was really cool. Frank Sinatra was born just probably about 20 minutes from where I lived. Frank Sinatra took a stool out, sat on it, began to sing, had a cigarette hanging out of the side of his mouth. When he took a break, he'd take a drag on that cigarette. And that was super with it. I mean, that was really it. That was the way that you, you really expressed your maturity. That's the way you really expressed that you were really a sharp person in the American culture. And that was what the whole culture thought. In fact, if you look at old movies, you find out that almost everybody smokes. And it was really the end thing to do. My mother growing up in uh, New York City, you know, she would sneak out. And she really wanted to be a sophisticated young lady. And so she would smoke. That's what a lot of that generation did, right? Have you ever noticed how times have changed? In fact, if I were going to try to find that Marlboro ad to use as an illustration today, it's hard to even find it. You, you don't have those advertisements on TV. In fact, this generation's raised, those cigarettes are going to kill you. Those cigarettes are going to give you cancer. Those cigarettes are a bad thing. In fact, there's a lot of restaurants. In fact, there's whole cities here in the area that if you were to go into that city and light up a cigarette, you might get a ticket for it. You know, you walk into a fine restaurant and you go to light up a cigarette now and they grab you by the back of the shoulder and you're out of there. You just can't do that. What I want to illustrate to you is how times have changed. There was a time when the entire culture was saying, this is really good for you. This is a great thing. This is the way you'll be able to express your sophistication. And yet now the culture has changed. Facts have come to light and how times have changed. What I want to talk to you today is not about, you know, how to overcome cigarettes. You know, that's something that the Holy Spirit can help you to do. And I know that some of you that really wrestle with that besetting habit and it, it's a tough thing for you. I really want you to know that, that God's Holy Spirit, just like he wants to deliver us from gossip and he wants to deliver us from lying, that he wants to deliver us from that as well. 
And we're with you in that. We're praying for you in that. We hope that you'll be able to, to really have the Spirit of God really move in your body and, and help you to be able to overcome that. And many that are sitting around you have been able to do that. So I really don't want to talk to you so much about the horrors of cigarettes because I think most of you already know that. But what I want you to think about is a culture that didn't think there was anything wrong with that and everybody did it and it was the cool thing. It's not cool at all. It's out. That's not really the thing to do, except I notice when I go back to UT, there's kind of a tremendous resurgence. And some people say, man, let's go back and who cares if it, if it hurts our body. But I think with this audience today, most of you would agree, yeah, I think the culture really recognizes that's not such a great thing. But what I want us to be sensitive to is that it's possible that there are some things that we believe are really good for us. Some things that will help us, some things that we, we've just got to get involved in. And yet we might find out that they're deadly, that they can cause malignancy, that they can shorten our life, that they can really hurt us. And that's what the next message to the church of Thyatira is all about. This is a church that was probably one of the most powerful, influential churches that the Lord spoke to. We've learned about the Ephesian church. It was the church that had truth, but no divine romance. They had truth, but they didn't have intimacy with God. We've learned about the church of Smyrna. They were a small, struggling church. They were under persecution, and they were a church that was incredibly poor, but we've learned they were really rich. They were filthy rich in Christ because of the beauty of what the Spirit of God was doing in the church of Smyrna. No negative thing was said about this incredible church of Smyrna that was undergoing a lot of persecution. The last time we studied the book of Revelation, we looked at the church of Pergamum. And this was a church that had martyrs. This was a church that had Anipus, that had even given his life for the cause of Christ. And we looked at the incredible testimony, the faithful witness of this church. But we also began to learn that they also tolerated the teaching of an Old Testament guy named Balaam. And what Balaam did is he infiltrated the people of God with two things, idolatry and immorality. As we move to the church of Thyatira, we have now made a kind of a circle. We've gone from Ephesus, north to Smyrna, north again to Pergamum. And now we're going to turn a little bit to the east. And we're now going to turn south in the circle. And we're going to come about 40 miles down into a beautiful valley. And the city of Thyatira is in that valley. Turn to Revelation chapter 2. What we have in the chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation is Jesus writing letters to churches, seven churches. They were literal historical churches, and yet they become kind of a pattern for the church for the last 2,000 years. Now, they give us a picture of the kinds of good things and the kinds of negative things that are going to arise in a church. And if you study Revelation 2 and 3, you're going to get profound insight into the kind of experiences, the kind of things that you'll be exposed to in your own church experience. It'll help you not to quit on the church, because Christ doesn't quit on the church. It's going to help you to put up with some inconsistency in the church, wherever you go. And you're going to still realize that Christ is still walking in the church. The church of Thyatira is a church that was the smallest city this is the smallest city that we're going to talk about. It was founded by some of Alexander the Great's soldiers. It was in a non-defensible position, but it controlled the valley that you had to control in order to protect the capital city of Pergamum that we studied about last week. 
So this was one of those outposts that forever down through its history got captured, got retaken, got rebuilt, got destroyed, got rebuilt, was constantly back and forth. Finally, the Romans took it over about 160 B.C., about 160 years before Jesus came, and they turned into a commercial capital. It was in a very strategic location on some major Roman roads, and what really began to take off is the Romans produced peace in the area, and the military threat was taken away. When you take away military threat, then all kinds of commerce can begin to develop. Thyatira was a city that was controlled by commerce. And back in those days, rather than having unions, they had trade guilds. It was not a developed, sophisticated, modern technological society. So they had clubs. They had trade guilds. So, for example, if you were a potter, if you made pottery, you would be in your pottery trade guild. And all the people that had the skill in making pottery would teach you those skills and you would learn their secrets and you would be part of that club, that guild. Another major industry in the city of Thyatira was, was wool making. So if you were in taking care of the sheep, shearing them, developing the wool, you would be in a wool guild, a wool, a wool club. There's another big guild for linen makers, and those that made linen and shipped it in from the outside would be in a linen guild. You all know Lydia of Thyatira. She was a seller of purple. Thyatira was known for this beautiful purple dye. They would take the murex, which is a small shellfish. There was just one, like a kind of an, uh, one drop of this, this, this chemical from that shellfish that they would mix together with some of the substances from plants in the area of Thyatira. They would make a beautiful, beautiful purple cloth that was known throughout the Roman Empire, and it would take a thousand days' wages to buy just one garment. So it was a very, very expensive, exquisite material. And Lydia, evidently, was a business person from Thyatira who represented this dye industry and this cloth in the city of Philippi where she met the Lord Jesus. So Lydia would be in this dye guild. You got the picture? All around, there's all different things. There's leather workers, there's uh, people that work in masonry, like with stones, and, and, the, and the way that they would build in those days was with a lot of stone and, and very much like our cement and concrete as well. They had some of the early progenitors of what we're making our living of. All of those different industries would be under guilds. Now, in those guilds, they would worship a patron god and Thyatira kind of mixed it all up together with the worship of the sun god Apollo, with the worship of the emperor. And so when you went for your business training, you would have meals. Everybody knows if you're going to have a club, you have to have good food. And in these clubs, you would eat these really good meals. You would offer the meat that you had to your god, to the god of Thyatira, to this god Apollo, this mixture of, of Roman and Greek thinking, okay? At the end of the meal, people would get soused and there would be raucous immorality. There would be bod jokes and dirty jokes and there would be body behavior. There would a lot of times turn out to be immorality. That's what I want. I'm just literally telling you what would happen across the city of Thyatira. Now, if you wanted to make it in your business, it was very important to be in this club was very important to be in this exposure, okay? 
I want you to start to think about some of the things that in our culture we're exposed to that, okay? Now, what's happening in the church of Thyatira is they're living in the city, controlled by trade guilds, kind of idolatrous worship and immorality is kind of intrinsic to these trade guilds, and as people begin to get to know Christ, they have to start to make some decisions about what they're going to do about those trade guilds. And that's what Jesus wants to talk to them about. And there's some real scary, negative things that he needs to talk to them about. But one thing I love about the Lord Jesus is that he gives us some very wise advice. And I want to teach you this. Whenever you need to reprimand somebody, whenever you need to correct somebody, whenever you need to put your finger on something in their life that's not too good, you want to learn to begin with the positive. You want to begin, first of all, with relationship. You want to be sure that they know you and they, they love you and they relate to you and they know that you have their best interests at heart. You also want to communicate that you're positive towards them, that you have their best interests at heart. So you want to talk to them about some of the good things they do. Moms and dads, you can get tremendous insight, obviously, from looking at the way the Lord Jesus teaches us. Because we as moms and daddies need to learn to teach like Jesus. As a pastor, I need to learn to teach like Jesus. Some of you were raised and you got turned off on the church because all you ever heard was yelling and screaming and warnings and shouting and it was sin, sin, sin. And your basic idea was, man, I don't want this Jesus thing because all it is is no, 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 no. And you never heard about the incredible joy, the incredible love, the incredible peace, the incredible burdens that are lifted because of Jesus. In fact, you hardly even heard about Jesus. All you heard was sin, 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 sin. Well, that's because someone wasn't following the example of Jesus. Yeah, Jesus is going to warn us. In fact, in today's passage, Jesus is going to give one of the strongest warnings to me and to you that a dad can ever give to his children. But he begins very positively. He begins by introducing himself. Look what it says in Revelation 2, verse 18. It says to the angel, to the messenger of the church in Thyatira. So now we have the messenger taking this parchment scroll. He's taking it down, walks into the city of Thyatira, comes to the church that's been established in that city, and the letter from Jesus begins like this. These are the words of the Son of God. This is who the letter's from. It's very important to ask yourself, whenever you're getting information, where is this letter coming from? Where is this book coming from? Where is this TV show coming from? Where is this movie coming from? This letter is from the Son of God. Psalm chapter 2 tells us that eventually a son of David is going to be ordained as the ruler of the world. In fact, the words go like this. You are my son. This day I have begotten you. And as the psalm developed in Psalm 2, Psalm 2 describes a son of God who becomes the ruler of the world. Jesus in this psalm is telling us that he is that son of God. So who is talking to us today, who I'm listening to today, is the son of God. I want you to know that ultimately... The Son of God knows what's going to happen. He ultimately knows how it's going to fit into his story. And he ultimately is the, is the one that's going to have to be reckoned with. 
And I want you to recognize that today. One of the things that's going to produce tremendous integrity in your life if you realize that the final one I have to deal with is the Son of God. All of us sitting here today, red and yellow, black and white, all different religious backgrounds, the truth of the matter is one day Dave will be face to face with the Son of God, with the divine Jesus. It's very important for you to live your life knowing that, believing that. Jesus is not just some good religious teacher. He's not just some great philosopher. He's not some guy that, like a good analyst of his culture, writes some good material. You can read through the Bible, take it or leave it. You just can't do that. You can curse him. You can blaspheme him. You can totally reject him. But one day you're going to stand before him. And that's not what I say. It's just reality. It's what the Word of God says. And the Word of God, because of predictive prophecy and a lot of other stuff, gives some really objective evidence to prove to us that Jesus really is the Son of God. We're listening to the Son of God. We're trying to hear Him talk to us. And we're thinking about what He has to say to us. Why do we do that? Because He's the Son of God. It's a beautiful thing. It means you can have great assurance because one day the one that we believed in will be standing before him. And because if you've trusted in him, you're going to be his kid. You're going to be his child. You're going to be welcomed into the family of God because he is the divine son of God. Now, it tells us something about this son of God. When I mention the phrase son of God, a lot of people that I talk of think of that beautiful middle-aged picture. And you see Jesus with those beautiful, beautiful, gentle eyes. He has beautiful, long, light brown hair. It looks like he just came out of one of the beauty parlors. And the, the light shining on this kind of this beautiful uh, textured skin. And that's Jesus. Some of you have that picture hanging up in your, in your house, and that's fine. Because Jesus is comforting and he's a good shepherd. But I doubt very much that he looked like a Renaissance man. I doubt very much that he was European. In fact, I know that he wasn't. Okay? In fact, one of the things you need to do in your own life is you need to let the Bible, as it describes Jesus to you, to begin to give you a picture of him. And you need to let the word of God be the one that clarifies his pictures as you grow older in him. Look what it says here. He's the son of God whose eyes are like a flaming fire. I've seen very few artists that picture Jesus with eyes like a flaming fire. Because that's troubling. When my dad had fire in his eyes, it wasn't a good thing sometimes for me. The idea here has that kind of an impact. It's like a king who has fire in his eyes. I, it reminds me of the, some of the linebackers when I would come up playing football and get under center and I'd look at this crazy line, the linebacker that would be saying nice things to me across the line and sometimes his eyes were like a blazing fire. And boy, was I thankful for that great big guy that was going to hype me the ball that was supposed to take care of him because that guy wanted to get me. That's part of what the eyes of a blazing fire. It means that you've got this great conqueror. We're going to end this book with the one who has eyes like a blazing fire coming down to planet Earth and vanquishing all of his enemies. I want you to know whenever you think of ignoring Jesus, when you think about forgetting Jesus, when you think about walking away from Jesus, I want you to remember he has eyes like a blazing fire. And he's ultimately going to be the one that purges and judges. What it means also, the eyes like a blazing fire, means that his eyes penetrate every situation. The truth of the matter is, as we think about our life and we have our discussions, 
man, we don't know half the time what's going on. One of the greatest challenges in life is to get discernment, to be able to evaluate information, isn't it? To be able to know what someone's heart is. You know, some of you parents, have you ever had your kid deceive you? And they faked you out completely. You just couldn't believe it. You just could not believe it. You know, they were sweet and they were kind. And then they turned around and did something really deceptive. And you just wish you had eyes like a blazing fire that you could penetrate into their heart. Some of you kids have had friends, you know, and you, and, and, and you just never quite know what's going on with your friend. You can't evaluate their motives and you're not sure where they stand. What it means to have eyes like a blazing fire is that Jesus... Jesus cuts through all of that deceit and all of that, all of that, that camouflage, all of that, faith, that, that frontal material, and he sees right in to every situation. And in the book of Revelation, ultimately, he's the one who will judge the living and the dead, and there won't need to be any evidence brought before him. There won't need to be any lawyers. There won't need to be any juries. There doesn't need to be anything, just him. You say, Dave, why is that? Because we need juries. We need lawyers. We need witnesses brought because we're constantly trying to discern. We're constantly trying to figure out what's really true. We can't look into the heart. But I want you to know, and it's very important for your well-being and for mine to understand that today as we're sitting here, there is a Son of God who has eyes like a blazing fire and he looks to the very core of my being and he penetrates it all. And one of the growth points in your Christian life will, you, will be as you day by day open your heart to his blazing look. Let him look into your heart. That look, that blazing look is what will begin to purge us from sin. It will begin to expose the con of sin. It will begin to expose the falseness of our attitudes. One of the things I want you to learn to do is I, learn, I want you to learn to spend time with him where you read his word and then you just quietly let him talk to you as you read his word. Very hard for Americans to do. If you're going to grow in him, you need to learn to read his word and let his blazing gaze expose your heart. If you can't do that, if you can't do that, if you're afraid to be all by yourself with him, and you're afraid to really listen to him, then you need to do it more than ever. Because it means that Satan has got some con in your life. And he has some things in your life that, that, he, that, that he's got control in. Because what Jesus does is produce someone who is unafraid of his gaze. The closer you get to Jesus, the more you'll realize that you're not perfect, you need his love and grace, but you won't be afraid of his gaze. Just like with your dad. When, you're, when you were doing right and you were doing what you ought to be doing, you didn't worry about dad's fiery gaze. It's when you're doing wrong that you didn't want to catch dad's gaze and sometimes mom's gaze. You know what I'm talking about? And one of the things in the book of Revelation is John the Apostle wants us to be like these churches of old who let the penetrating gaze of Christ permeate our life. It's so important for me before I go to sleep at night just to lie there and be quiet and talk to my Savior and then wait for him to talk to me. Let him penetrate my life. Let him expose the anger that might have been there or maybe the lustful thoughts that might have been there or the pride that might have been there. 
to let his penetrating gaze go right into the core of my being. Because that's what leads me to repentance, what leads me to ask for the forgiveness that I need. This church needs the penetrating gaze of Jesus. It says, finally, his legs are like burnished bronze, his feet. And that would be his feet and his legs are like burnished bronze. They're, they're strong, they're glowing, there's a purity. Burnished bronze is a bronze that's been purified, so it's bright and shiny, kind of like a brass trumpet. And it speaks about this, this penetrating, powerful judge, but also about his purity. And boy, am I thankful for that, because it seems like we're living in a culture where every judge in the world that puts forward has to quit because they're not morally pure. Isn't it great to know we don't have to be discouraged? Isn't it great Jesus has never had to step down? I'm so thankful for that. So thankful that no little rumors developed about him that, that turned out to be true. His legs are strong, like burnished bronze. They're glowing, and they're going to glow forever and ever. And he's going to be standing when all of his enemies have fallen. But Jesus says in verse 19, Jesus begins now his positive evaluation of the church. He says, I know, and this is what it means, I know by experience. What it means is that Jesus has been walking through this church. It began this vision with Jesus walking through the lampstands. Jesus has been walking through the church. If Jesus were here today, he would be saying, I know, I've been with you in your life. And I've been watching you, and I penetrate your souls. And I know everything that's going on in your life. I'm very much aware of what's going on. And now he begins with some very positive things. He says, I know your works. And I believe the word worked in this verse is encompasses. That's kind of the big thing. I know your works, and here are the works that I know about that I really want to encourage you about. Now, here's the positive. These are the kind of things that if Jesus comes to a church and says, what's your church like, and is your church going really well? Jesus doesn't ask about numbers, doesn't ask about finances. He asks, these are the things. He asks about these things. Number one, he says, I know your works. I know about your love. In other words, your self-sacrifice for one another and for me is growing stronger. In fact, Jesus is going to say that you have more love for him now than you had when you first started your relationship with the Lord. Unlike the Ephesian church, this Thyatiran church is accelerating. They're not decelerating. They are accelerating in love. And Jesus says, I want you to know I appreciate your love. One of the works that we need to be devoted to is loving each other. In fact, it's the most important thing that we can do because it's the one thing that will stand when all else has fallen. So what Jesus asked me is, Dave, do you love Mary in the home? Do you love Josh and Janae in the home? Will you self-sacrifice for them? Are you patient? Are you compassionate? Are you not keeping a record of wrongs, putting in those specifics of how 1 Corinthians 13 outlines the actions of love? I put those in, and Jesus evaluates that. Can he say, Dave, you know, you're a more loving person now than you were six months ago? And that's not always true. In fact, some of you, to be honest with you, as we grow older, I think it's easy to move out of love. Because you've given love, you've sacrificed for other people, and then they don't come through for you. And then your heart is exposed that you really didn't do it because of love, you did it because of ego, and when ego wasn't met, then you don't do the actions anymore. You know what I'm talking about? And so you begin not to love. Or there's people that you really self-sacrificed for, you really did it for good reasons, but they didn't love you back. In fact, they hurt you back. 
In the body of Christ, you know, you really gave to them, you ministered to them, you met their needs, but they didn't respond. Anybody have ever had that happen? You really loved a believer? You just poured your whole life out. I mean, you just dumped it on the ground for them, and they just threw it back into you as a cheap nothing. Anybody ever had that happen? As you grow older, what happens? You know, when that happens again and again and again, what happens? You stop doing it, right? Man, a turtle that sticks its, its head out of, this, out of that hard shell, and every time it sticks its head out, wham, it gets hit. Eventually, you just keep all the soft parts in the shell. And the church of Thyatira didn't do that, and I pray that we're not going to do that. One of the things I want to pray is that we're going to increase in our love for one another, our family love for one another. One of the greatest challenges is to be responding to the Holy Spirit's movement in our hearts so that we pour out love on one another. And not just on one another, but on strangers that we meet and and people that need Jesus. And so Jesus commends the church of Thyatira. This church was filled with love. They were filled with faith. This church was actually accelerating in their faith. Now, what is faith? I have friends that have been accused... I've got a dear friend that was accused and and even almost brought before trial uh, and accused on a moral charge. And it was totally untrue. Totally. There wasn't an ounce of truth in it. And when my friend looked at me and says, David, I guarantee you I had nothing to do with this. It is a total lie. I believed him. I believed his word. That's what faith is. And all of you practice that every single day of your life with your friends, with your kids, with your moms and dads, with your teachers. You have to put your faith in people. Now, one of the horrible things is, one of the horrible things is, is when the person that we trusted turns out that they lied. And then our faith crashes, our trust. That's why faith and trust are totally related because then we say, I can't trust you anymore. Now, Put that over it with Jesus. What it means to have faith in Jesus, it means when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto me but by me. It means that I trust him. He said that he can take me to the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Whosoever believeth in me shall never, never die, but they will have eternal life. They will live forever and ever. Those are incredible promises. What it means for Dave and for you to have faith in him is we hear Jesus make those statements and we believe it. We trust in it. Now what I want you to do is I want you to realize that you make a decision that begins that life of faith. That happened to me when I was five. When I respond to the gospel, maybe some of you will respond to the gospel while I'm talking to you. What I want you to understand is that's a very, very important thing to believe, to hear the word of Jesus. Faith is not closing your eyes and jumping out into nothingness. Often faith is defined in the, in the modern world as that kind of an idea. In other words, I know it's probably not true, and I believe, you know, science has probably disproved it, but I just got to believe in love somehow, so I'm going to jump out and believe. It's not what faith is. In the Bible, faith is related to hearing the word of a credible person. And that word of a credible person is substantiated by witnesses But you've got to make a decision, will I trust them? So like while I was in Nashville the last couple of days at a a convention, 
You know, it's the Nashville Scene Opera Land Hotel. We're at the sales convention. Jesus is kind of, you know, very much part of it. But, man, when I look, a bunch of football players come in. That was weight training. It was, it was the guys that do weight training. And so these guys from A&M were there and guys from the Big East. And, man, they're learning all this weight stuff. And I hear him talking all this stuff. And there's a part of me that says, you know, what is Jesus? You know, this is a totally different way to live. And how could Jesus be part of that? That's one of the things I just wrestle with. And so there's a part of me that begins to say, man, oh, I'm not sure all this Jesus stuff is really true. Anybody ever wrestle with that? I do. I want you to realize that faith, what is faith in Dave Wurtzen? It's my decision that I go back and I think about Jesus. I don't think about the culture that I was raised in. I think about Jesus. I think about what his word says about him. I think about what history says about him. What I want you to know is that I think about him. And what Dave Wurtzen's faith is, is, is I'm still teaching you today. And I'm teaching today because I've decided with every ounce of my being, whether there's doubts or not, that's the way life is. But I've made a commitment that Jesus is a truth teller and I believe him. Amen? That, I, I want the kids to realize you're going to go away to college. And you're going to be challenged greatly. You're going to hear of other ideas. And, and you're going to hear, you know, there's, you're into the, you were raised in the Protestant thing. And you're going to hear about the Roman Catholic thing. And you're going to hear about there's the Hindu thing. And there's going to be the, you know, the Mormon thing. And, and isn't it so great? There's going to be the New Age thing. You're going to be exposed to all different kinds of things. And they're going to tell you, you know, that the professor will tell you that, that you want to line all this stuff like a great big smorgasbord and just pick and choose what you want. And it seems so creative and it seems so with it and so intellectual. I want every one of our young people, when you're tempted to just throw out the uniqueness of Jesus, please go back and read the Gospel of John. And as you're reading the Gospel of John, ask yourself, is Jesus a liar or is he a truth teller? And I would beg of you to hang on to Jesus. You say, Dave, why are you so strong about that? Because in doing this long enough now that I can see young people that went away to college that hung on to Jesus. And so they ended up marrying somebody that was hanging on to Jesus. And they raised their kids and taught their kids to hang on to Jesus. And they hung in there with God's people, with, with a body of believers, and, and they were hanging on to Jesus. And you know what? They had a lot of trouble. But I can tell you objectively from the depths of my being, that that's the place to be. That those of you that are older, that made those decisions to put faith in Jesus and to build your marriages and your family on him, I want you to know that objectively, I know objectively that that was the right choice. And your friend that chose to forget about the faith in Jesus and they chucked their culture, and they chucked what they were taught, and they forgot that it was really at the core of this thing. Maybe there's a lot of trash around it, but it was really Jesus that they needed to trust, and they ended up throwing Jesus out too. Boy, those life stories are totally different. Because it's objectively true today that when you build your life and your family and your homes on Jesus, that you don't find out that you couldn't trust him, that he turned out to be a deceiver and a liar. That's what it means to have faith in Jesus. Jesus is telling the congregation of Thyatira, you are increasing, you are accelerating in your faith. And that's what I want us to do. 
Now, there's some other positive things that Jesus talks about in this context, but we're going to have to go on to that. But the two positive things that we've learned today, and there are two positive things that I want to be growing in my life. I want love to be increasing. And it's a very simple thing. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to know a church should be about love. So I want you to ask yourself this week, am I growing in my love for Jesus and my love for his family and my love for others? And that's a good way to think about it in that order. Am I growing in my love for Jesus? Because that's the flow, the source of all love. Then as I fall in love with him, am I growing in my love for these people I'm sitting with on Sundays? Am I growing in that love? And then that will spill out into a love for unbelievers. And then I want you to think about what I said about faith. I'm I'm really trying to be honest with you. I tried to spell out to you what real faith in in an everyday life is about. And I want to understand that 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 if you've received Christ, you're eternally safe. But your daily enjoyment of the life of faith, your daily trust in Jesus is not a given. I can live a day not really built on faith but built on Dave. And so can you. And so I want you to think of faith not just as a one-time happening in your life. I want you to think about it as a way of life. And did you understand what I said? It's not jumping in the dark. It's trusting in a person. And what I try to get across to you is a very simple apologetic idea. But one of the strongest reasons for the truth of Christianity is simply the truthfulness and integrity of Jesus. That's what faith is.